0: There are few decades in film history that have been as scrutinized as the 1980s. But to really understand the decade and its movies, it's going to take a couple someones who were there for it the first time around. Drew McQueenie and Scott Weinberg are ready to review every major film of the decade one month at a time. They'll look at what worked then, what endures now, and how it felt to be there when it all went down. Turn back the calendar with us. It's the 80s all over. Targon and rock legend had to undergo emergency brain surgery after being beat in a fight. And in Texas, Hurricane Alicia killed 17 along the Houston Gavelston coastline. There were major upheavals around the world, as well as promising signs. Menachem Begin resigned as the Prime Minister of Israel. Haiti adopted a constitution. And the U.S. and the USSR finally signed a $10 billion grain pact, important in order to help keep that Cold War cold. And finally, on the night of the 30th, the Space Shuttle Challenger was launched and aboard it set Guillaume Bluford, the first African-American astronaut. And I'm pretty sure no matter how good the films are, that was the high point of August of 1983. Hi, everybody. My name is Drew McQueenie and welcome to 80s All Over. I'm joined
1: as always by my co-host,
0: Scott Weinberg. What's up,
1: Scott? Hi, Drew. Welcome to the middle of the worst year ever. If the experiment that we had, an unofficial experiment that we had a few months ago, was are we going to be able to prove or disprove that 1983 is, in fact, the worst year of the decade movie-wise, I have not seen a whole lot of evidence to uh, sway me.
0: And I know people have said, uh, you know, there's a lot of high. There are, there's some highs this month too. There's some good movies this month and we'll definitely get into them and touch on them. But there's so many low points. And the problem is there's so much low. When you're wading through one of these months, this month and we're, I'm already neck deep in September and September is something else. There's, it's just that there is so much product and a lot of it is terrible. There's no question.
1: Right. You know, what's not terrible. What's that? The people who support our show financially. Thank you to everybody who supports us uh, on Patreon. We've gotten a lot of really nice comments lately. We, we were featured in Podmas on AV Club again. Thank you, Mike Vanderbilt. Just thank you to everybody who supports the show, whether it's financially or otherwise. It's also a, an incredibly fun challenge, uh, and
0: we do make mistakes from time to time, which leads me, of course. Say oops, oops.
1: upside your head. Say oops upside your head. Say-
0: I pulled a boner. What was it? What what is it? Shame. Get in the shame corner. Oh, my God. And I did it so confidently. That's what blows my mind. I think what happens is you've got so much information in your head that sometimes you have a fact wrong. And when you say it confidently, you've said it confidently for enough years that people just agree with you. Thankfully, not all of you are, are that way. And you corrected me. Uh, and I owe an apology to the great Larry Cedar, who is a character actor who was indeed the man on the wing in Twilight Zone the movie uh, Robert Picardo did do suit work but it was later with Joe Dante It was not for George Miller and I do not know how the hell I had that crossed in my head but Larry Cedar, your work was awesome uh, Larry Cedar of course is better known from Deadwood, which is where I fell in love with him as an actor
1: great character actor and I also will share some of that blame because I assumed you were correct I know and love Robert. Picardo. And I could have said, are you sure? But I just assumed that Drew McQueenie was correct.
0: Confidence. That's the key to just being completely wrong, is be confident about it.
1: And, and all jokes aside, it's important to note when you make an honest mistake, <laughs> just admit it and move on. Like, yeah. I'm just glad we didn't uh, inadvertently kill somebody last month. You know, that's all.
0: Which we've tried to do before. But um, here we go, folks. We're going to dive in. And um, uh, we've done this a couple of times lately. We have sort of a special conversation first, because something is not a typical theatrical release, or it didn't get a conventional theatrical release. And Man, that is 100% the case with uh, our launch movie this month, Berlin Alexanderplatz.
1: Drew, um... Yeah,
0: it's hard to know where to start, isn't it?
1: It All right, well, you start with the running time.
0: 15 and a half hours. 939 minutes.
1: Now, not to be a jerk, but... <laughs> our podcast is not <laughs> 80s miniseries all over. As our listeners know, I often have trouble... With Fastbinder, in that I uh, admire his skill, his um, profligacy, how do you say prolific nature? Pro- Prolificacy. Profligacy. Yeah, th- like Prolificacy. That he made so many films in such a short period of time, and that many of them were brazen and challenging and difficult. This being, I believe, his final released project. Man, I just didn't know where to begin.
0: Well, I also admire his and, Prof, um, profligacy and <laughs> profligacy. And I do think that in many ways, this is the ultimate fast binder statement. This was a phenomenon when it came out in Germany. It wasn't just big. It was one of those things where every single person in Germany had an opinion on it because it was on television and it was a major event. And some of those opinions were, this is not even technically a finished piece of work or releasable. Part of that was because of the way he shot the thing. It is a bold attempt at truly translating a novel to the screen.
1: Literally translating, yeah, yeah.
0: Along the same kinds of madness as what Zack Snyder did with Watchmen, where it was, you don't even know if he's interpreting so much as it is, I'm going to get every single thing that is on the page of this and somehow make it go onto the screen at 939 minutes, every single one of which I watched. I feel like it is the ultimate anti-epic. Very little happens in the sense of plot, but it feels to me like the closest thing you will ever get to a real novel in the sense
1: that there are digressions. There's whole chapters of this thing that feel like a digression. Love the period design. I think it's gorgeous to look at. And in a way, does it not remind you in some ways of Fanny and Alexander?
0: But it's it's Fanny and Alexander in the sense that it is immersing you into a time and place. The difference is who you're attached to, because in Fanny and Alexander, I love taking that journey with those kids and through that family. And Berlin Alexander plots is miserable to spend time in and by design, where I think that you're supposed to feel like you are trudging alongside this Job like character who is just constantly under the thumb of the universe and. I can't imagine what it feels like in a theater, because at home, where I can take a breath and I can breathe and I can relax, it's still claustrophobic and oppressive. Was this even something that you would have considered seeing as a kid? Yep, and it was because of Siskel and Ebert. Um, I did not go see it, but I remember when it played on PBS, after the theatrical presentations, the big deal was PBS was going to get it, and they were going to show the entire thing, and I, I taped all of it. And I think I made it 12 minutes in, and I went, nope, terrible mistake. And yeah, I wasn't ready for Fastbender at all at that point. And even now, it is an incredibly difficult sit. The Criterion box that I have is set on my shelf since I bought it. It was only because of this podcast that I finally had the nerve to sit down and finally confront it. It is
1: a daunting project.
0: It is. And I feel like the fact that he was dead by the time it aired in the U.S. is kind of crazy. Because it feels like this howl from beyond the grave by this guy who had left behind this insane body of work that is almost it's a dare, he dares you to sit through it, and then when you do finally get to the end of this thing, and you get to that last episode, he turns it all inside out, and upside down, and throws it back at you through another filter, and you realize that as much as this entire thing has been an annotation, it's also been a comment on what happens when you adapt, how no matter what approach you take, It's going to get your fingerprints on it. It will never be the original thing. It will always go through you in some way. By doing that last episode, he shows you, and I could have done it this way, and it could have looked totally different, and you could have sat through this for 15 hours. It is a wild man just at play with something that he
1: figures he can say anything through. You know what's interesting, Drew, is that I found a lot of parallels between Berlin Alexanderplatz and our next film, Microwave Massacre. Did you really? I, I, Okay, I'm fascinated. I'm pulling up a chair, and I'm popping
0: popcorn. Here we go.
1: Anthem Pictures reluctantly presents what is considered to be
0: the worst horror film of all time. Your skin will crawl. Your stomach will turn. I have to go to the restroom. I mean restroom. Your blood will boil. Dining will never be the same.
1: It's all caught in blue. I've never tasted anything so unique. It's delicious. My Amroids. Microwave Massacre. This is a terrible fucking movie. First (laughs) off, Microwave Massacre is more of a comedy than horror, although it does have some really gory, goopy murders. It feels like sub-porno. Like, it
0: feels like a porno with no porn in it. So it's almost like a porn parody yet it's a cannibalism comedy about a guy whose wife is such a bad cook that eventually he kills her and then starts preparing her body and everybody at his work site thinks it's delicious. That's it. That's the whole movie. Uh, Do you know who the Jackie Vernon is, this lead guy? Do you know who that is? If I had to guess, because I did no homework on Microwave Massacre because honestly, it's not worth it. My guess would be he was a guy who made a living off the scraps of already awful Catskills comics who toured third-rate
1: circuits. This is execrable. It's embarrassing. It's embarrassing to look at.
0: There's a chunk of these that we're just going to hustle through here that are like this. This next one, a South African action film that stars a few vaguely recognizable faces. I feel bad for everyone associated with Prisoners of the Lost Universe.
1: Catapulted into the distant future by a maverick scientist... Carrie Madison and Dan Roper find themselves prisoners of the lost universe. Let her go, you son of a bitch, or I'll kill you. Captured and threatened by the evil warlord Cleo, and terrified by strange beings and nightmare creatures, they spectacularly fight their way through this hostile world. Keep running! I'm running! Escaping one danger, only to find themselves faced with another. Can they ever discover the secret to the dimensional doorway back to their own world? Until they do, they will remain prisoners of the lost universe. Ah! Starring Richard Hatch from the original Battlestar Galactica, Kay Lenz, who you might recognize from House, and the awesome John Saxon, who would clearly be in any fucking movie that had a buffet table and a paycheck. Yeah, who Mystery science theater level... Swords and Sandals meets Land of the Lost.
0: And it's no fun, and there's no inspiration, and you can't even get the sense that the people who are there know that they're goofing off and they're having fun. We'll get into a couple of those later, but this is not one of them. And yeah, the
1: less said about Prisoners of the Lost Universe, the better. I will give this film some credit over our next one in that all of its footage comes from its own film. Yes, it was actually shot as a movie as opposed to... Uh, Whereas Revenge of the Boogeyman, a.k.a. Boogeyman 2 is comprised of literally 40% of footage from the earlier Uli Lamel film, which is the only even remotely watchable Uli Lamel film you'll ever see. Remember the original bogeyman? Well, he's back, more terrifying than ever, in revenge of the bogeyman.
0: A spirit of evil captured forever in the glass of a mirror. Once released, no one can halt the relentless revenge of the bogeyman.
1: This is horrible.
0: <laughs> I can't. I used to make fun of The Hills Have Eyes 2 as the laziest horror sequel of all time. It is positively Evil Dead 2 level compared to this, though. The whole setup at the beginning is the girl comes in and they say, so what have you been doing lately? Well, <laughs>
1: and then you go into 45 minutes of, of clips. You mentioned Hills Have Eyes too, which has the infamous flashback from a dog's perspective. Um, and I'm, if I'm not mistaken, I could have been wrong because this movie is indecipherable. I think this movie has a scene in which a shard of a mirror has a flashback. If you are to apply
0: film language to this, which I'm not sure the director did, then yes, you are correct. It is the epitome of how you can rip a consumer off. What's crazy is somebody at some point eventually did a movie that is a meta joke about this called Return of the Revenge of the Boogeyman, which is a guy returning home in a 90 minute flashback showing this entire
1: movie and then coming back at the end saying, and I did it. The movie could have had a class action suit against it because it's half a movie. And what's interesting is that it stars one Susanna Love, who's a lovely woman, and she apparently had a huge August 1983 because she co stars with Keir DeLay in Brainwaves. They lead us into the unknown. Have you heard of the Clavius process by any chance? One uses electronic devices to transfer impulses. They force us to endure what we cannot understand. She seems to be approaching a near-paranoic state.
0: It wasn't an accident.
1: They have created a world in which we have no control. Brain waves. They have violated the laws of nature. Yeah, um. this one has Vera Miles, Tony Curtis, and it's about a woman who gets a brain transplant, and then I think she gets visions of the donor's previous, like how she died. Right?
0: You are applying more of a narrative through line to it than they did, and this is the same guy. This is Uli again. Good God, Dalia just was cursed. Aside from two thousand one. I can't think of really anything else of substance that guy was in. And there's a point where you just get the feeling they're casting him because of that 2001 connection. But the movies are barely movies. That's, that's
1: the thing running through all of these we've mentioned so far. They're barely films. Like, you, you could talk about your Ed Woods and your Uva Bowles. I would put the ineptitude of Uli Lamelle up against any of those guys. Look at the man's filmography and then get back to us. Or don't. We don't care. At least he doesn't
0: Act. In brainwaves, because he is in Boogeyman 2, and this
1: was not his forte. You know what? Isn't Lou Ferrigno's forte? <laughs> I'm so terrified. <laughs> okay, acting, yes, acting. Thank you.
0: That's a much better answer than I was All afraid right. you are going
1: to Let us now get into one of the most laughably entertaining Italian schlocks ever, 1983's... From the depths of space comes the strongest man on Earth in the super adventure odyssey. Hercules. The incredible Lou Ferrigno is Hercules. In a battle with unearthly creatures. Hercules, the superhuman hero with the strength of an army Lu Farigno is Hercules. A Golan Globus production from the Canon Group. Neither of us are necessarily huge fans of The Guilty Pleasure or So Bad It's Good, but for this film, I will put both of those on hold. This is bizarre beyond belief. It's not just. I, I can't think of many films that combine Greek mythology with nonsense science fiction. Makes a mess on the kitchen floor and walks away. That's what this movie does. <laughs> it feels like they looked at the box office and because the Italians, and this is what I love
0: about the Italian film industry, and I'm not being ironic when I say that. I love this. I love that the Italian film industry shamelessly looks in box office charts and goes, all right, that plus that. Because half the time, the that plus that makes zero sense, which is where you get a movie like this. It feels like they looked at Clash of the Titans in the Star Wars movies, and then they just went, all right, they're both making money. Let's go.
1: Right, but that's what a 12-year-old would do. This movie, he throws a bear into space. Um, In
0: the best scene in the film, you mean? And it turns into a constellation? He doesn't just throw it into space.
1: He throws it into space and it becomes a constellation. Well, the idea that it becomes a (laughs) constellation helps it make more sense. So that's why I left that out. Um, Persephone opens Pandora's box in this movie. I'm sorry. I know that's pedantic. But why? It's called Pandora's box. Why would Persephone open it? In this movie, I'm pretty sure Mount Olympus is on the moon. I enjoyed watching it.
0: I, a movie like this is a hoot. It's just ridiculous, and if you know full well going in that what you're getting is ridiculous, there's not a breath taken it between any of it. They just they just move from one nonsensical piece of nonsense to the next. Best part of all this is that it was an MGM release. Oh
1: yeah, this was a major release. Like this it was a- 1983, and a studio went, yeah, sure. I, I'm telling you, 1983 is a is a garbage. <laughs> a garbage <laughs> fire and it does not get any better with paramount this is a major release steve gutenberg as an invisible man in a comedy 3d comedy yeah and
0: by release you mean it's like what happens when you cough and fart at the same time because it's
1: just awful now the first 3d action comedy is here this is sam cooper he's cute. being invisible gets him into spy rings Diplomatic circles, Whoa. girls' locker rooms, Ding dong. and a lot of trouble. <laughs> He's the man who wasn't there in 3D. Consider the possibilities. Oppa, oppa. Witless, ugly. Lisa Langlois? Langlois. Le- yeah, she's adorable. Love her. She deserved better. Jeffrey Tambor, mm, not good in this film. And even the awesome William Forsyth is just hung out too dry. Here's the thing. All of these movies that were shot
0: with this particular 3D process are particularly grotesque eyesores on home video because you're only getting half the image because they were literally side by side. So you don't get you can't do a full transfer of the film. So you get all these lopsided, weird, awful transfers that make them even uglier and more aggressively unwatchable when you go back to them now. But the man who wasn't there, under the best of circumstances,
1: would have been an endurance test. I believe we coined the phrase for this type of cinematography uh, as the muddy pantyhose. It's
0: incredibly racist. He plays a government liaison of some sort. Basically, he's handling the equivalent of the nerd table at the rush week at the beginning of Animal House. It's a room full of countries that are so poor that they don't merit real food. So they serve them like fish tails and bowls of snot. And that and that's the joke is, well, they're so poor that we're just going to treat them like garbage. And you take care of them because nobody else wants to look at
1: them. And then he gets involved with some fucking serum that makes him invisible. And let's all have comedy. Fuck Fuck you. you. I wonder if he's invisible. I
0: wonder if that means there will be naked people. Drew, how the flying fuck is this the follow-up for the guy who directed Nighthawks. Uh, Believe me, there's follow-ups this week that are are confounding. This is why when I see people who get hung up on directors and they get so defensive and they like start following the directors around sort of cult-like and anybody that says anything about any of the directors' work, lesser or major, gets attacked for it, it's like, man, there is no filmmaker who I feel that way about because everybody has highs and lows, sometimes to a degree that is breathtaking. The idea that you go from Nighthawks, a perfectly charming, ridiculous piece of action trash to The Man Who Wasn't There, which is incompetent on even the most fundamental filmmaking levels, baffles me. I'm wondering I'm wondering if there's any thread that runs through terrible movies that we might be able to trace. I wonder if maybe I could look at some credit on The Man Who Wasn't There and maybe identify that there's a common problem with other films we've talked about. Maybe... The screenwriter of Any Which Way You Can and Krull and Ice Pirates is the problem. Maybe Stanford
1: Sherman, my enemy, is back. Maybe that's what's happening. You leave Stanford Sherman alone as... Stanford Sherman, you are my enemy. Since our last episode, you'll be happy to know that more people like Krull than don't.
0: Remember Krull.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you pissed Um. off. You made some Disney fans (laughs) angry, man. (laughs) I did. (laughs) Oh, but I love, we do have to preface that Coco is a wonderful film. We were not knocking Coco by pointing out of that the, not. the music was remarkably similar, nor do we think that there was plagiarism going on. It's a math problem.
0: There's only so many notes in the world. It's That's all it is. It's just a math problem. If you noticed
1: that, you would have mentioned it on your effing podcast.
0: Um, it's delightful.
1: Um, True. Speaking of controversy, in the past, you have gotten a little bit of uh, animosity or umbrage from some of our listeners for referring to certain... Types of comedy and the actions therein as, quote unquote, sex crimes. Gee, I wonder why you're bringing that up right before our next film. I wonder why you might mention that
0: right before getting it on. By the way, you have to say it like that because of the exclamation point.
1: No, uh, I I actually think that the exclamation point is more like getting it on. (laughs) Wait, I don't know, man. Try that again.
0: Give me one more read on getting it on.
1: I'm a horny teen and I'm getting it on. This movie sucks and it's no fawn. I am getting it on. Getting it on. (laughs) Private school is what? A bunch of guys dress up as girls to see boobs. There's the plot. Give me the one sentence of this plot. A peeping
0: Tom figures out a way to go into business shooting video so that other people can
1: also benefit from his sex crimes. And I'm going to say two things here. One, he realizes that he can make money by recording girls getting undressed and selling those videos. Number two, our next movie is Curse of the Pink Panther. Just when you thought the world was free of inspector control, <laughs> another great detective has arrived Detective Sergeant Clifton Slane. He's carrying on a tradition of courage. <laughs> Brilliant undercover technique. I like this voice. That's making him the next great inspector. I have a horrible feeling we are seeing history repeat itself in Blake Edwards' <laughs> Curse of the Pink Panther. Yeah. Um,
0: perfect. Um, uh, yeah. Curse of the Pink Panther. Let me look at my notes. Uh, the first thing it says here is "Oh, go fuck yourself." Okay.
1: Okay. We did have a minor, a little uh, disagreement on Twitter over this this film. We both hate this movie, right? We'll get into the details of why. Drew thinks that this film. Correct me if I'm wrong. You think Trail, which is literally half clips, just like Boogeyman 2, is better than this film. And I am dying to know how you prefer Ted Was.
0: Yeah, 100%. 100%. At least with Trail of the Pink Panther, I can at least disconnect and just watch those excerpts of Peter Sellers. And there are a few sequences in that movie that I had not seen before that I think are really lovely little bits of Peter Sellers' business. I didn't laugh once in Curse of the Pink Panther, and it makes me mad at Blake Edwards. It makes me mad at him for thinking that Pink Panther was about
1: anything other than creating a space for Peter Sellers to be funny. Some people might not remember that Clouseau was originally a side character, and then he got expanded for the sequels because everybody loved him. He's like the minions in that regard. So to extend the series beyond his death and to exploit his death is disgusting. But I remember that when we talked about Trail, the whole point was, if you're going to keep the series going, don't do it this way. Your point is don't do it, period. This is just as ghoulishly cobbled together as the
0: other one is, but it's cobbled together from scripts because there was a plan originally There was going to be a final film called Romance of the Pink Panther, and the whole point of that one was that Inspector Clouseau finally snapped, steals the Pink Panther, and then goes on the run. They sort of use some of that in this script. But then the other idea that they developed post Peter's death was, okay, we're going to just go to New York, and we're going to introduce an American detective, and he's going to be the new Clouseau, and then we'll do a whole series of movies where he'll solve crimes. So, again, they didn't understand that the Pink Panther is the goddamn diamond. It has zero to do with Clouseau. So if you're going to redo it, fine, The Diamond could go on tour around the world and you could have different things happen to the Diamond and have different comedies built around that. But creating another Clouseau misses the point completely and casting him as Ted Wass is cruel.
1: It's cruel to Ted Wass, for God's sake. Ted Wass, before we haul off on this young gentleman at the time, this guy was on soap and he was ridiculously funny on soap. He is not funny in this. And after this, he would be in Sheena and Oh God, You Devil. Yeah, this is a no-win gig. Worst agent ever, sir. Yeah, I just feel
0: like saying, oh, you pretty dummy. You are so doomed. This is going to kill you. Not only does he not survive it, but he's as far from surviving it as you can be. He is embarrassing in the physical comedy stuff, which is supposed to be the whole point. And it's like Blake has forgotten how to even stage these scenes. There is a sequence that comes late in this film. And um, if you're worried about spoilers for Curse of the Pink Panther, I'm sorry. The, the Clouseau in this movie, who appears throughout it, does finally appear in one final sequence, which was shot over the course of one afternoon because the actor who plays the part, we give them one day. It is the worst slapstick sequence, and it's because this man's really not a slapstick comic.
1: The man's performance in Cannonball Run is more comedically uh, adept than what Roger Moore does at, in, in Act 3 of Curse of the Pink Panther.
0: My name is Inspector Clouseau, and I'm going to fall down quite a few times
1: now. They really wanted Dudley Moore for this, and who knows? I, I have no idea, but Dudley Moore was certainly not averse to starring in crap. And also, this movie led to at least four lawsuits between MGM and Blake Edwards. He said uh, well, they, they cut his budget, and he went over, so they sued him, and then he sued them for defamation of character, and then there was two different countersuits. It's, it's absurd what went on with this guy.
0: David Niven, when he appears in this film, is dubbed by Rich Little because his voice was so frail, and it was upsetting. Evidently, to watch the footage of him
1: was that it was this one
0: or Trail one of the or both. It's both. It's this one and this one all the way through. And then there's the sequence where Burt Kwalk appears in this as Cato and has a long sequence with Ted Wass and. It's like somebody else made it and then snuck it into the film because basically he's talking about, I fucking hated Clouseau. I hated my job. I hate everything about this. Why are you here? Leave me alone. And it's such a hostile, weird left turn to take where it shits on everything that ever existed involving Quauk in the series and makes it feel like he was genuinely a victim, which suddenly makes it all less fun and how what a miscalculation of an appearance
1: unfortunately Blake Edwards still not done with the pink panther uh, although it's not our problem anymore because the fucking Roberto Benini thing was 93 and therefore not our purview yeah thank god <laughs> no speaking of purview <laughs> Drew why do you know what you are a glutton for punishment you're the hunter from the future <laughs> <laughs> oh. Trapped in another time, searching for his past. A hunter of incredible power and strength. He is the warrior known as You're the Hunter from the Future. Rated PG. Now playing at a theater near you. Oh boy. All right. We talked a bit ago about a movie that was um, half Greek mythology and half sci-fi nonsense. And I can only imagine that Hercules would have made an absolutely flawless marijuana-strewn double feature with your The Hunter from the Future, because it's a Conan-type knockoff, and then in in Act 3, it becomes a science fiction movie! Quite unexpectedly, I might add. Yes! What am I watching?
0: Um, I love that this one tries to hide its Italian roots. Hercules doesn't give a shit. Hercules is like, yeah, yeah, we're Italian. It's fine, get over it.
1: Your is directed by Anthony Dawson, a.k.a. Antonio Margheriti, a good, sh- a good schlock master. And and one thing I, I, I always found very interesting about this movie is that it's based on an Argentinian comic book. I did
0: not know that. Yeah, it starts off, they spend a lot of money, by the way, in their first, like, 20 minutes, and then no money for, like, the next 40. <laughs> so that dinosaur at the beginning had to be the most expensive thing in the film. And it basically exists so that Yorick can stab the living shit out of it for five or six minutes.
1: Drew, what can you tell our listeners about the lead actor, Reb Brown?
0: I know, for example, that his first name is Reb, which is pretty terrific.
1: The guy became a really prolific. C-grade <laughs> actor for a long no, time. No, he,
0: he was around for a long time. And every now and then would dip into movies that I kind of dug and, you know, Uncommon Valor, he's in and We'll get into that one. Oh, that's, yeah. He was a big white dude at a time when big white dudes were kind of what was getting cast across the board. And he's not a lead. He's a dude you put in as like the third soldier in a battalion and he'll do fine. But as a lead, absolutely not. Zero leading man charisma.
1: If you had a laser gun to your head. And you had to choose between recommending your or Hercules. Which one?
0: I would go with Hercules. I have more fun watching Hercules. And I think part of it is because even though Lou Ferrigno's dubs start to finish, Lou is more fun to look at. He's more engaged.
1: You know what doesn't work?
0: A- at all, on any level? Go. Smokey and the Bandit 3. We're in hot Good old boys are at it again. Catch Jerry Reed, Jackie Gleason, and guess who in Smokey and the Bandit Part 3 Thursday on CBS.
1: Drew, why don't you tell our our readers? You know what? They read our stuff too. Drew, why don't you tell our readers what this used to be? Now, this
0: one is a little bit more wrapped in myth because, yes, this movie was originally titled Smokey is the Bandit. There are some misconceptions about what that means, though. There was, How so? there was never a version of this movie where literally Jackie Gleason was playing two roles, including the role of the bandit. And that has become urban legend over the years, that he shot the whole movie and he was the bandit and everything. No, the way it actually worked was this. The original cut of this movie was simply Big Enus and Little Enus make a bet with the sheriff. The sheriff then becomes the bandit in the sense that he is determined to win this bet and starts breaking the law and other law enforcement goes after him it didn't work they screened it people were confused they didn't understand why the Trans Am wasn't in the film so they went back and they added Jerry Reed whose character Cletus gets contacted now midway through the film and told we need the bandit he's not available wink wink so why don't you be the bandit and then he pretends to be the bandit and gets involved and Colleen Camp ends up in his car and it's horrifying
1: I love Jerry Reed. I think he's a very likable presence on screen. Uh, I also like Colleen Camp. You know, I'm glad that they brought them into this fractured, unnecessary garbage dump of a fucking piece of garbage. I just cannot fathom how people at Universal kept their jobs. In 1977, there
0: were two films that were gigantic in my house that summer, Star Wars and Smokey and the Bandit, one for me, one for my dad. But we saw both of them over and over, and they were equally important. And the nice thing is they were both equally huge in pop culture. They were gigantic hits that summer. Now it's 1983, and look where they've ended up. In May, we get Return of the Jedi, the final chapter, the biggest movie ever, and in August, this fucking thing falls out of someone's butthole. Did you see that video of the girl recently who was shitting in the Tim Hortons? This is that. The opening theme song alone of this movie is enough to make me regret this podcast. That's how bad this film is.
1: Jackie Gleason, at this stage in his career, and, you know, God bless the man, he was an absolute legendary immortal of comedy. But late in his career, he would show up and ooze contempt for a paycheck. That's what he did. <laughs> well, and here's the thing. The movie opens with a patent parody
0: where he comes out and he's retiring and he's addressing the assembled policemen about how his career is over and he's done now and he's leaving and then he retires. When he retires, can you explain to me why his son retires with him? <laughs> Because he's in Florida retired, and in every single moment, his son is with him. So then they unretire five minutes later. All this is by the end of the opening credits, and all that, by the way, exactly as funny as it sounds. And then they get to the bet, and the bet makes no sense. I feel bad for everyone who actually showed up. Big Enos and Little Enos, Paul Williams ends up in a dress in this movie, and you know he was wondering, how? How did I
1: end up? here. You know, for actors like that, you'd be like, whoa, 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 you're doing part three with no burt? Damn, here's my time to shine. So, of course, they're going to there's nothing wrong with that. People talk
0: about how like Judd Apatow ushered in this whole era of like improvisation and comedy, and you would shoot more than you would ever use, and then kind of find the movie. No, uh-uh. Guys like Hal Needham were definitely working in that kind of aesthetic, but the difference was they had no real sense of any sort of comic taste,
1: so they would just shoot miles of footage and assume something would cut together. This one wasn't even Hal Needham. Like, if you like, Can a film get worse? Can a series get worse?
0: I have a story. I met the director of this film. He's one of the first filmmakers I ever dealt with. When I was living in Tampa in high school, he came to Tampa to shoot a movie called The FBI Murders, a television film starring Michael Gross and David Soule. Scott Swan and I went down from our high school to the set. We weren't invited. We just went. We took our cameras, and we told them we were students. We had a television channel. We wanted to shoot behind-the-scenes stuff and interview people, and they let us. By the end of the day, we ended up interviewing everybody, including David Soule and Michael Gross and the director, Dick Lowry. And Dick Lowry is one of these guys who have been around forever and done a ton of TV work and I asked him about Smokey and the Bandit and specifically about the Smokey is the Bandit cut and the legend of the whole thing with Jackie Gleason. And my, one of my very first interviews ended with a director going, nah, that's bullshit. Where'd you hear that? That's bullshit. Fuck that. So thanks, Dick Lowry. You were a champ even then, man.
1: It's a class act.
0: I also want to point out there's a really weird sequence in this movie where Jerry Reed first gets the call to become the Bandit. And his reaction Is so over the top ecstatic. There's like a bandit room that he has in his house where he's already got the outfit, so he can go be the bandit. It's creepy how into being the bandit he is and how excited he is about it's his turn to do it. It's like walking into someone in your bedroom with your pajamas on their head. Like it's uncomfortable. You something's wrong with him.
1: Now are you starting to understand? When I hear 1983, this you know what I think of part threes. And 3D.
0: Yep, and I truly think the only way this could have been worse is if they had made it in 3D.
1: Oh, God.
0: Yeah, it could have happened, too. You know it.
1: We move on to a much better film, although it is kind of a lesser film in the catalog of a brilliant, maybe my favorite director of all time. Drew, why don't you break down the details for our listeners on Sidney Lumet's Daniel. Well, I mean, you're talking
0: about about as great a pedigree as you're ever going to get. This is Lumet coming off of Death Trap, The Verdict, and Prince of the City, which is an insane run of films. He's adapting a novel by E.L. Doctro, and the book is about... Although it's been fictionalized and there was some legal back and forth about whether or not this is what it really was, it clearly is. It's about the Rosenbergs. It's about the children of the Rosenbergs growing up in an America where their parents were not only just called traitors, but were executed for treason. How do you live with that? You know, and the film is set in the 60s because the kids are now old enough that, like, Timothy Hutton plays the grown up son, Amanda Plummer is the grown up daughter, and they're each dealing with. Their emotional and sort of psychological uh, disturbances because of how they grew up. And they're also dealing with the 60s, having launched into an age of protest where what their parents were fighting for starts to kind of be the mainstream counterculture. And so there's a lot of meat to potentially play with here. I really like the way it opens with a protest song. There's a lot of protest music used throughout it. It's very authentic protest stuff, and there's a documentary energy to it. And man, I was ready for this movie to knock my socks off, and it
1: just doesn't. I adore uh, Sidney Lumet, and I think what makes him such an interesting filmmaker is that in his best films, he finds an angle or an entry point that you— you're seeing stuff that you wouldn't see from any other filmmaker. Prince of the city is an interesting procedural that gives us an insight that we don't get from other crime films. And network takes us inside network television in a very cynical and insightful way that we don't get from a lot of movies. This movie doesn't really take us inside this scandalous, fascinating piece of American history or the aftermath. It it feels kind of melodramatic, almost as if Lumet's not all that interested in the story.
0: There's one piece of information missing from this film that derails the movie to such an extent that it just can't work. It doesn't matter who the filmmaker was, it wasn't going to work, because it never says whether or not they did it. And without dealing with that, you can't really deal with who those parents were. And that's what this is about. It's about these kids. And more than that, it's about generationally what happens when the generation that came after the generation that tried to become socialists in America and wanted to change the system and were kind of beaten down and made to feel like commies and traitors then gave birth to a counterculture that rose up in the 60s which was more successful at establishing a counterculture and something that changed the way mainstream society worked, at least in part. There's real fire in that. But if you don't grapple with the sins of that previous generation and say whether or not they did it, even if they didn't do it, the damage they did to their community and their family is still profound, and you can deal with that. And there's good performance work here. T- Timothy Hutton's good I think Amanda Plummer gives everything she has to playing this broken bird of a daughter and and is very moving, considering I don't totally buy the situation.
1: Very good supporting work from Ellen Barkin at uh, Asner. I I just felt it was kind of an interesting human interest piece. And I didn't, you know, with Lumet, I expect to be kind of thrust right into the emotional arc. And I, this one kept me at arm's length. With Reds though, and this, there is some sense of why socialism kind of got a foothold
0: in America at the moment it did. The most energetic stuff in this is the flashback stuff to Manny Patinkin and Lindsey Krauss as the Rosenbergs or whatever they're called in this, the Isaacsons. And they're, sort of why they were activists and how they were activists and you see that for Patinkin it was such a calling that he didn't care if he burned his family down whereas with Krause there's real guilt that is built into her as a mother as she realizes what destruction she's done also um, can I just say whoever cast this movie Lindsay Krause and Amanda Plummer as mother and daughter is spooky on the nose awesome casting like it's crazy how much they look alike in this film
1: uh uh Uh, There's no real segue for these two movies (laughs) to go from Sidney Lumet's Daniel to Alan Arkish's Get Crazy. Well, you could go from Ellen Barkin getting treated like trash in
0: Daniel to Daniel Stern, who did that to her in Diner, who is also in Get Crazy.
1: Get crazy. Get it while it's hot. Get it if you're not. Come and get it get crazy what animal house did to college and airplane did to flying get crazy does to rock and roll get crazy i'm calling this one a mcweeney special because it's not only an alan arkish film in the very much in the vein of rock and roll high school but it is knee-deep in rock music of the era, and that's your wheelhouse.
0: Well, I, I want to love this movie so much, man, because I love Rock and Roll High School. I think Rock and Roll High School is legitimately great. I think it's an entertaining movie. I think it has got a uh, uses the band right in the sense that it understands the Ramones cannot act. If you lit Joey Ramone on fire, he could not act like it hurt. He's terrible, but... That's fine. Alan Arkish totally knew that, and he used the Ramones the right way, and they're perfect in that film. Get Crazy Clearly is a movie that was greenlit as one thing, and then airplane happened.
1: Yes, it's so funny you say that. To me, I'm watching this entire movie, and it, I think this feels like somebody took Empire Records and said, we want it to be Animal House. Airplane
0: ruined comedy for a little while because suddenly everybody realized, oh, I don't have to do anything. It doesn't have to make any sense. I can just do whatever I want. And that's going to be funny because it doesn't have to make sense. It's a fine structure for a film. It's New Year's Eve. They're going to have a giant concert. There's lots of different bands coming through. And then running the show for me is Daniel Stern and this young woman. And their romance is sort of the arc throughout the entire concert. Okay, but the musical acts have to be interesting or funny. They have to work.
1: One of them is very funny. I, you know who I like. In who this did movie. you like it in this is film? Is Malcolm McDowell parodying McJack. See,
0: oh, wow. I'm in the opposite end of things. He asked to do all of his own. In fact, didn't ask, demanded to do all of his own singing and performing in the film.
1: Oh no, no, no! I mean,
0: in the performance. I did not mean in well, the singing. But to me, they're one and the same. And it's it's scary that he. I get that he's doing Jagger and he's clearly all the body language is Jagger. All the performance stuff is Jagger. But there's also a vanity to Malcolm McDowell's performance here that I find entertaining in a way he may not have intended. I think he really, to some degree, also just wanted
1: to play a rock star and be a rock star. And I think the movie is one-third likable, one-third chaos, and one-third bad. I wish the
0: music was better. If it had, like, great live performances all the way through from real bands and stuff... Then you had the comedy sort of wrapped around it. I'd be fine with that because then at least I'd have those acts. It would be like, oh, but look, there's that great Lou Reed number. And oh, and then Cheap Trick came out. And it, but even that stuff, I don't think is very good. And the, and the rock and roll, the real rock and roll artists who show up in this, I don't think are used very well. I don't think the music's very interesting. It's just a bust start to finish for me.
1: But it's occasionally funny. It's, I never like thought, oh, this is embarrassing. I thought it was going to be like inept, like hysterical. You know, but it's not that it's just very broad and chaotic. And
0: I feel like Arkish was probably run over by this thing. I, I met Alan and I got to know him a little bit back in the early 90s. And I like saw some films with him and, and did a few things with him. And he was he's a really nice guy. And he's one of those guys who I think is more frustrated by his film career than we are. So it's hard to beat him up for a movie that I know he doesn't like terribly well. Like it got away from him somewhere. And, you know, you've got guys like leaving shows up in this and leaving was from fear and was a real punk artist. And there's a real punk energy to leaving. But it's treated as a joke here. I would have rather just fear showed up and played a number. This is the kind of film where they name a character, Willie Loman, and it's a girl. And that's supposed to be funny.
1: Uh, And then, wow, we move on to something that is a obscure, interesting, misshapen little treat a George Lucas-produced animated film called Twice Upon a Time. Listen to the simplicity of the perfect plan. Your spirit of adventure is inspiring. Time!
0: Now's the time to strike! Get, Get out of the way, you stupid idiot! <laughs> All right, I'm wearing rubber underwear. You are not a
1: Jedi yet. It is a nice to mess with fairy godmothers. The tallest tale you could never possibly imagine is coming. At you. Uh, Thank you. And it can only happen twice upon a time.
0: From filmmakers John Cordy and Charles Swinton, when you talk about that sort of uh, American zoetrope, George Lucas, that experimental filmmaker side of him, this is the kind of stuff that resulted from that, where he put his money where his mouth is all throughout the 80s, and he, he helped get these little weird films funded that almost inevitably never really got a commercial release. And this one uh, took me forever to track down in the 80s. Uh, when it finally came out on Laserdisc in the early 90s, it was a fucking event as far as I was concerned.
1: All right, narratively, it doesn't make a lick of sense. I don't know what the hell happened in this movie. I, it, it made The plot makes about as much sense as Yellow Submarine, but it has this interesting animation style uh, in which obviously we all know how normal animation is done, but this was done with... Um, geometric shapes as placed on top of a light table and then moved around that way as opposed to drawn.
0: Uh, see, John Cordy, uh, you and I grew up on his animation, whether we realized it or not, because John Cordy was a big guy in Sesame Street. A lot of his uh, style was developed doing Sesame Street animation, which was way more experimental than the stuff that we saw in feature films. And I love that. And he did Electric Company as well. And I love that. I love the fact that these guys who made the jump had sort of cut their teeth working in pure experimental form. So when he did this and, and did this Lumage style, as he called it, it's just amazing someone let him make it and then let him actually make it in that way and let him go through the entire process. Uh, a lot of the dialogue is improvised and then animated to later where he took inspiration from performances and stuff. He used a lot of real kids and a lot of um, real family friends to record stuff. Trivia fact... One of the children uh, who recorded vocal stuff for this movie is David Fincher, who was a friend of the family.
1: There's so much of ILM in this. There's so many animation legends. The names I pulled out were uh, David Fincher is credited as special effects, and Henry Selick is one of the segment animators. And, of course, Henry Selick would go on to direct uh, Nightmare Before Christmas and James and the Giant Peach. I... I gave up on the plot 20 minutes in and just kind of sat there bemusedly just like what what weird visual trickery are they going to throw at me next and not all of it works some of it is just weird for weird sake but i dug it yeah
0: it's got a charm to it and it is ultimately so weird and so s- sort of sweetly strange that yeah i i always find myself enjoying it a little bit more than i remembered i did i wish it was great but it's definitely, for animation fans, a curio worth your time.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Definitely worth digging up. As is our next film, in my opinion, Ralph Bakshi and Frank Frazetta, Fire and Ice. From a time when the world was new. And the Dragon Hawks. And everything was possible. <laughs> From the film creator of Wizards and Lord of the Rings comes fantasy and adventure. Action and suspense.
0: I should be the target audience for this movie because I my, one of my very favorite things in the late 70s and early 80s was the uh, the Conan stories by Robert E. Howard, and specifically the Conan comics that Marvel did by Roy Thomas and Jerry Conway. I like this movie. I don't love this movie. I think it is a beautifully designed film that is frequently really groovy to look at, Filled with characters I don't understand, doing things I'm not sure I can follow for reasons that are unclear.
1: I am a huge fan, whether even when it's only B- level, but I love... The rotoscoping technology that Bakshi Bakshi was so interested in, which was – well, you're the animation buff. Why don't you explain what rotoscoping is?
0: Rotoscoping is when – as opposed to using artist models or just simply drawing from your imagination, rotoscoping is literally filming something and then using that as – the foundation for the drawings, where you are illustrating over the top of it. And you're adjusting and changing, but you're using the real motions as what you're animating. You get an adherence to physical language that most animation exaggerates. You get squash and stretch, and things are bigger than they really are. This makes
1: it, in Bakshi's mind, much more realistic, I like that in some ways, like you say, in the motion of the characters, rotoscoping is fascinating, but then it it kind of taps into that uncanny valley that we talk about sometimes with, with CGI, where if it's too realistic, our brain uh, kind of fights back a little bit. Something like Fire and Ice, and indeed all of Ralph Bakshi's work, is an acquired taste, and in many ways a lot of this is is dated in some ways, but... I really had a good time with this. I don't get the the, the plot is very standard. Uh, you know, got to go rescue her and fight the evil villain who can, you know, it's the the sides of fire versus the evil ice lord. But just watching it as an animation relic. I, I really enjoyed it.
0: My favorite stuff in the movie has to do with Dark Wolf, who is medieval Batman. He's the, the dude who shows up in the mask and he's on the poster or the bad guy himself, Necron. And Necron has the funniest scenes in the movie, whether they're meant to be funny or not, I'm not sure. But Necron is hilarious every single time he shows up. And especially towards the end of the film, there's a big, long, extended, like 15, 20 minute sequence where you're just in the throne room and he's just being a bitch. There's just no other way to put it. He's just he's in a mood. Yeah, he's just messing with people. God, it's the funniest scene. And it goes on forever. And then Dark Wolf shows up and they fight. And that's great. But Dark Wolf barely is in it and it feels like a miscalculation because your, your hero, the guy who literally is your main Conan figure, it's like this is the Rosencrantz and Guildenstern version of his movie. His movie's happening over there somewhere and every now and then he runs in and goes, I've just killed 700 men and runs back out. And you're like, can I watch
1: that? Is that happening where we can see it? This might this is one of my favorite Ralph Bakshi movies only because it – works as a simplistic adventure movie of all the movies inspired by conan the barbarian i think this might be one of the more successful
0: i think it's nice also that bakshi because he's working with frazetta as a designer and so you've got bakshi working in someone else's art style and that tension is interesting it kind of pushes bakshi to try some different things And, like, the backgrounds in this are beautiful. Here's a real crazy uh, footnote. For those of you who know who Thomas Kincaid is, the painter who is basically a human sleeping pill, that guy got his start painting backgrounds on this movie. And, I mean, if you've ever wondered what
1: would happen if the side of a van came to life, this is it. When I was growing up, we had a next-door neighbor who was, like, four or five years older than me, right? And when you're 13 or 14... That's the coolest person in the universe, Oh yeah. right? Oh, yeah, by far. He showed me Frank Frazetta, all heavy metal magazines, Chinese throwing stars, Ooh, <laughs> um, uh, fireworks, um, a- anything Did- that a 14-year-old skinny Jewish kid shouldn't mess with, he had it. <laughs> I think they issued one of those kids to every neighborhood. I think everybody had one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and he—he's the one who introduced me to Frazetta and Fire and Ice, and I am—I am grateful for that because uh, it, it's kitschy, but I, I love the animation in it. I really do. Yeah, and now we move to a film that's not animated at all. <laughs>
0: You are technically correct. That is that is that is correct. It's it's just a great
1: transition. Um All right. it's, it's the Star Chamber. The Star Chamber. To Detective Lowe's, it is a puzzle. The answer is in here somewhere. For Harden, it has backfired. I'm exposed author policy. The Star Chamber. Only one man is willing to stop them, and time is running out. The Star Chamber. Now you can know who they really are. Rated R. Now playing at selected theaters.
0: So, Scott, where do you stand on uh, all things Peter Hyams?
1: I am a Peter Hyams fan. I've always been a Peter Himes fan, and now that I am friendly with one of his sons, who is a mensch and a sweet guy, I like Peter Himes even more. And I think he's interesting because he's one of the only Hollywood directors I can think of who frequently, although not in this film, worked as his own DP.
0: It's one of the things I always loved about him. I always thought that was such a cool, weird detail to who he was. It informs his films in the sense
1: that even his lesser work, really well shot and stylish. We say this a lot in every episode, one or two movies, but I I think we'll we'll, uh, designate it to this film, The Star Chamber, which is about a young judge who discovers that several judges uh, in the same court are part of what's called The Star Chamber, as in the film The Star Chamber. And what that means is they hire an assassin to kill criminals. They are forced to let go. So it's got that... Right wing, left wing combo, which is really interesting in these kind of political uh, sociological thrillers. But I think this movie could be remade so much better. One of the things I find
0: interesting is how neatly it fits into what Michael Douglas was at that time, which is uh, sort of he worked in that socially conscious thriller world and China Syndrome had made a ton of money doing that. I think he was looking for scripts that that sort of tap that nerve. Right, social issue stuff. Yeah, but where it was still a thriller and it was a genre film first, and I I think there's a real appetite for that with him. It is a provocative idea, which is judges who get together and because they know that these people were guilty but they got off on a technicality – they go ahead and they they execute them. It really is the embodiment of the argument that comes with the death penalty, which is what happens if you accidentally execute somebody who turned out to be innocent? Could you ever live with yourself? And is that system then justifiable at all? Because if one innocent person dies, it shouldn't be. So Star Chamber does a nice job of trying to figure out a way to make that a dramatic
1: situation. I, it's got a great performance, of course, by Hal Holbrook as the uh, I guess the head judge, the most nefarious of of the judges, and also the great Yafet Kodo as a police detective on the case of these murders, it feels like it is the victim of test audiences. For the first hour, it's a pretty interesting political, sociopolitical concept uh, that's batted around and goes from far left to far right and gives both sides uh, debate angles And then in Act 3, it really becomes like Michael Douglas just said, can I be an action hero for 20 minutes? And they said, yep, okay. And the ending just feels alternately, like, incongruous, but yet, kind of like action movie, okay? So the ending is a bit disappointing. Not terrible, but a bit disappointing. But overall, I was pleasantly surprised. I dug this one.
0: Don Kalfa plays a bad guy in this, and Don is one of those guys who I think is always uh, interesting and great. Was in a million movies in the 70s. I... Absolutely came off the couch. I was so excited when Otis Day showed up just because how many fucking movies is Otis Day in? But yeah, it's it's one of those movies where I think it's 2.5 stars is invented for where I like enough about it. that Yeah, I'm glad I saw it. I didn't love it. I didn't like flip out for it. I wouldn't say that it nailed the concept, but... It's a blunt instrument of a movie that knows what it's doing well enough that when it gets there, you go, yeah, all right, cool. That was uh, That's pretty
1: much what I bought a ticket for. It seems like the kind of film that Pauline Kael would have called fascist.
0: That's one of the reasons that I would love to see somebody maybe tackle some of this material now is we have gotten no further in this conversation since 1983. And the idea that this film is as frustrated with the system as we are right now – implies that it's crazy that it could spend 30 years being that frustrating. So, if anything, a Star Chamber remake
1: should be more incendiary because it's had more time to rev up to the subject. Now we move to a horror film that is, I believe, among Stephen King's favorite adaptations of his works. Uh, From the underrated Louis Teague, let us discuss... Cujo? From the novel by Stephen King, creator of Carrie and The Shining... Comes a chilling new tale. Kujo. Now there's a new name for terror. Kujo, directed by Lewis Teague, rated R. Now playing. Check newspapers for a theater near you. Uh, right after I moved
0: out of my uh, my house in the wake of my marriage falling apart in 2014. There were a lot of conversations back and forth about, well, you can't show them this. You can't show them this. You have to be very careful about this. And it was all directed at me because clearly I was going to lose my mind and just start showing them Shogun Assassin every night at bedtime. And then like the third weekend they came over, they said that they had just watched a movie with mom the night before. One of her favorites from She Was a Kid, it's called Cujo. And I just about lost my mind because Cujo is absolutely an effective adaptation of King's novel and Almost unbearable to sit through, especially as a parent, thinking about that child and his performance. Just the way they handle the material with Danny Pintaro makes this totally unsuitable for
1: children. Yeah, I think it's a fantastic uh, adaptation. I It scared the living hell out of me as a kid. I've always been a cat person, but of course I do love dogs. And I am amazed at how they get this consistently terrifying performance out of this dog. There's a reason that Cujo is now synonymous with, you know, killer dog movies. It's not the first or only killer dog movie. I think Louis Teague is a very underrated director. I mean, at least at this point in his career, he already had done Alligator, which I love. The intensity that D. Wallace has to deal with in this movie, you get the impression you're in that car with her, sweating your ass off in that in that sun, waiting for the dog to come walking around the corner again. The movie does a great job of really making it feel like they were there for a long time and for a 90 some minute movie using the editorial techniques and whatnot to make it feel like they're really there for a long time. Uh, I think the movie is fantastic. I think it's uh, one of the best horror movies of the year. It's
0: so harrowing the stuff with that kid. And I, I don't know what they did to him to get that performance. Cause he is dramatically upset in that movie. He's the boss. <laughs> Oh my God, it's so, I really, it breaks my heart. I actually find it really hard to watch now. And it's just the sound he makes. It is so real and it
1: is terror. It's not like... Oh no, I can imagine, it'd be interesting if you were to write an article on horror films for parents. This would be in the top five. Because if you're a parent of a young child, I can't imagine a movie being more terrifying to you than this. And it's shot by Jan DeBont, who is fantastic. And
0: Ed Louder's in it. The reason Cujo felt so revolutionary
1: was it was just a
0: straight adaptation of the book. There was very little work done to try and make it work. Like, they, they just adapted the book. They kept in all the stuff about the um, adultery and about his breakfast cereal account going bad. And they kind of left in all the texture and... And as a result, it's not just a horror film. It works because you actually get a sense of the characters and why their marriage isn't working. And by the time they end up at that farm, there's already a lot of real character tension happening. And then it just strips it all away and plunges you into that awful, awful situation.
1: I I think it's a a fantastic uh, horror film. I would not show it to Children Under 10 at all. Nor would I show Children Under 10 the raucous Rodney Dangerfield vehicle. Easy money. I bequeathed the remainder of my estate, which includes Monahan's department store, estimated worth $10 million. No! If and only if her husband Monty can reform himself in one year. Now, Monty Capelletti is about to learn there's no such thing as easy money.
0: He's strong like me. Look, what is this? Nothing. By right, right up, not going to be my master.
1: With a little help from his friends, you know I a lust for life, and a body that won't quit, Fist. he's going to get wealthy, even if it Fist. kills him. Fist. Fist. Oh, my. Check my oil. Oh, Okay, all right. Easy money. I like this movie. I thought I would watch it and cringe. Is am I am I nuts? Tell me I'm nuts. I don't
0: I don't even know if it's a movie. Like it's so weirdly built. It's I just recently re-watched some of the WC Field stuff. And one of the things that I like about it is it's so clearly just built on this is his personality. We're just gonna throw characters at him all day long to see what happens. Best case scenario version of Easy Money is that. And there's moments in this movie where I agree with you. I think Rodney is Very confident in this film. He's more comfortable here than he was in Caddyshack. He's had time to learn how to be on a film set. He's had had time to learn how to listen to other actors and actually kind of try to be in a scene. But the difference is, I don't think this filmmaker has any idea how to pace something. So by the time they actually drop the premise of the film, which is Rodney is Rodney. He has a mother-in-law who hates him. And when she dies, he has to stop drinking, smoking, swearing, fucking everything that makes him Rodney in order to get the money. And he has to do it for a set amount of time. And his brother-in-law who wants the money is going to screw with him and try
1: and stop him from inheriting. So that's the setup. You don't get Joe Pesci, by the way, hilarious in this movie. Joe Pesci is very good in this.
0: How far into the movie does that setup finally drop,
1: though? It's like 45 minutes. And before that, there's no shape to this. It is a vehicle that is more or less a series of vignettes in which, you know, Rodney gets to do his shtick. But on that level, structurally, it's a mess. But as a vehicle for Rodney just doing shtick with funny actors, Candy Zara is really good in this. She is. Young, young J.J. Lay as her daughter. And Taylor Negron
0: as her husband who is so sexually aggressive it scares her right back into her parents' house. They have their own thing going on that is not unfunny. And that's the thing. I I don't ever want to... I don't want to imply about this film that it's without laughs because that's not fair.
1: It's just that it is so ramshackle that it almost doesn't hold together. Yeah, it's a messy movie, but I think it's very funny. And here's an interesting interesting tidbit, Drew. Only screenwriting credit ever for P.J. O'Rourke. It's so weird.
0: I would be curious to know how... How, his, how much of his fingerprints are on what we actually
1: saw? Uh, it's got four credited screenwriters, a terrible Billy Joel theme song. Oh, yeah. It, it might hold the record for the most frequently played film of HBO in the early 80s. Easy Money, you turn HBO on at any time of day, 1983 to 1986, Easy Money would be on.
0: Scott, is this our last 3D film next? Is this the last one?
1: Why don't just sit down and Uncle Scott will tell oh you. Oh God, oh God, please. Drew, we're going to talk about the 3D resurgence of the early 80s and how it died. It started in 1981 with Coming At ya, a Spanish-American co-production that ended up making a little bit more money than people thought, and therefore shepherded in an entirely new era of three-dimensional motion pictures. Are you sleeping yet? Uh, not as bad as I was during this movie, but go on. That led to, in 1982, Parasite. And Friday the 13th, part 3. And then, earlier this year, 1983, we got Treasure of the Four Crowns, Space Hunter, Adventures in the Forbidden Zone, Jaws 3D, and The Man Who Wasn't There. And that leads us to. Metal Storm. The destruction of Drew McWean. Yep, it does, and Charles Band is waiting for us. Yeah, okay. Now, we can get into Charles Band in a minute, but to answer your earlier question, no, we technically have two more 3D films. Uh, in November of this year, we will get to Amityville 3D. And then, Drew, you can relax because our next and final 3D film is in November of 1985, an animated feature called Star Chaser, The Legend of
0: Orion. Oh, God. Thank God. We are almost there. All right. That gives me the energy I can power through now. Here we go.
1: From the alien wilderness of the future comes a warrior, Dojin, the Finder. He will battle the forces of evil. For him, it's high noon at the end of the universe. The epic movie that challenges your senses is the ultimate 3D experience. Metal Storm, the destruction of Jared Sin. Rated PG. See Metal Storm at a theater near you soon. Drew, now I want you to give our listeners a thorough and very careful retelling of the plot of Metal Storm, the destruction of Drew McQueen. Nee, 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 nee. The, uh, there's guys, and I think there's a desert? It's indecipherable, yeah. literally. The hero and the villain are completely inconsequential in this movie but what I like about it is that we do have Kelly Preston Richard Mull and Tim Thomerson all of whom would go on to much better crap Charles Band most probably well known for the full moon banner which would be created a few years later probably with the money that Universal paid them for this unwatchable piece of fucking garbage wow here's
0: the thing again MGM released Hercules Universal released metal universal pictures that is mind-boggling to me that they looked at this that executives sat around in the room screened this movie and went sure let's put our name on it wow uh, here's the thing i know there's people who like the charles band school of stuff and and argue that he has his place just like Roger Corman. I do not care for the Charles Band filmography. I will not be caring for it as it continues during this decade.
1: Oh, I like, I definitely like some of his stuff. I definitely do. And we'll get to like the first puppet master and whatnot. Yeah, we
0: may, we may be disagreeing on that. This is not the forgivable, charming, low budget end of thing. This is cynical junk.
1: This is not, oh, we really would like to make a fun movie, but we don't have many resources. This is, let's throw the least amount of money into what's hot right now. Here is, I'm going to help you out, Drew. This is from the Internet Movie Database. On a desert planet, warlord Jared Sin is trying to convince a tribe of mutants that he is their messiah and gain unlimited power in a crystal. Wake up!
0: Is that the, I still don't know if that's the good guy or the bad guy.
1: Ranger Dogen and explorer Diana, whose father was murdered by Sin, must stop him.
0: You just try it, Ranger Dogen, and you see what you get. Jared Sin is the hero! I'm sure of it. He must
1: be. <laughs> All right, moving on. All right, you know, this film, If anybody has any thoughts on Metal Storm, the destruction of Jared Sin... Uh, May God have mercy on your soul. Write him down on Twitter and fold it and jam it up your butt. No, just kidding. We would like to hear from anybody not named Cargill who likes this movie. <laughs> Now we're going to move on from easily one of the worst movies of the year to, I believe, I'm going to speak for Drew, one of the very best comedies of the year, Rick Moranis and Dave Thomas's Strange Brew. I can't believe it! He drank it all. Now, Dave Thomas and Rick Moranis, stars of late night TV, take off in the adventures of Bob and Doug McKenzie's Strange Brew. Rated PG.
0: Now playing at selected theaters and drive ins. It is safe to say I was obsessed with Bob and Doug McKenzie by this we're point. We are in the
1: same fucking wheelhouse, man. I watched Stranger Brew constantly. I had Take Off on 45. I had one of the softcover books. I was like most kids of this age. I went crazy for this movie. But. I didn't see it in theaters Oh wow Yeah I saw it on VHS So tell me your story Were you an SCTV fan? Nope Not at that point This is the movie That turned me on to SCTV Okay so I I was an SCTV fan Already And rabid
0: And when they announced There was a Bob and Doug McKenzie Movie coming It was the greatest thing I'd ever heard When we actually saw what the movie was, my first reaction was I had a problem with the fact that it wasn't set in the world of SCTV. Because if you know that show, it is about a low low budget local station at a in a small town and the characters of that small town Mellonville are all the characters of SCTV. So one of the things that's great about that show is seeing how people show up over the course of the series, playing different parts and things like that. Like your local anchorman Floyd is also count Floyd, the horror host on the weekends. And there's stuff like that, that I love throughout it. I love the world of SCTV. I'm familiar with SCTV. But, Drew. So I, when this <laughs> happened, I was surprised that Bob and Doug weren't in Mellonville. That was a shock to me as a fan. As soon as I got over that, I love this movie. I love the fact that instead of doing a Melonville movie where these characters exist, they made a movie that is Hamlet via or it's Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, I guess, because it's not directly Hamlet, uh, but via Canadian rednecks. And that is such a bizarre choice. And the fact that they lured Max von in somehow to do this, terrific, just terrific combination of things.
1: Von Sydow is great, but I uh, Paul Dooley is uh, the an absolute MVP in this movie. I, I didn't get half the jokes in this movie when I was a kid. I didn't know anything about Canadian culture. Nothing. What I like about this movie so much as an adult is because, like you said, it was spawned from SCTV. So in many ways, Strange Brew is very much like an SNL movie. But unlike most SNL movies, uh, aside from maybe Blues Brothers and Wayne's World, this expands the sketch in the most fun colorful interesting weird ways they knew that this was a, a simplistic characters that were created for end of the show bumpers and then it, it took off like like wildfire as cult favorites people all over the north america at least in canada and the u.s loved these characters and that's what inspired the movie and what i love is that it's not just oh let's find a way to stay in the set and do that for 80 minutes with a bunch of wacky characters coming in and we'll make our money that way. They did something elaborate that cost money that took, like, lots of setups. This is a real movie. It's not an extended sketch. Well, but it's insane it's,
0: it's so crazy. Like, I love that the beginning of the movie is them showing a movie they made, and the movie they made is so terrible, a science fiction film about the mutants of 2049, and, and then that leads to a riot, and then they spill out of the theater into their actual movie. That alone is hilarious. I love that their dad is voiced by Mel Blank and that we... Why? Don't know, it's just funny. This is the film debut for Rick Moranis. You know, before this, no
1: movies, and suddenly he's writing and directing and starring in one. That to me is one of the most interesting things about this movie because if you had asked me, say, five years ago, Scott, off the top of your head, who directed Strange Brew? I would not have remembered that these guys co directed this movie. And it looks good, it's cut well. Like, I like it's a very silly comedy, but like, like I said this is a real movie. This is not an 88-minute sketch comedy, you know? But it takes chances.
0: It, It does definitely have a comedy reality. And, you know, we were talking about Get Crazy and how clearly Airplane had influenced the way comedy worked right then. I like that Dave Thomas and Rick Moranis are adventurous in the kind of comedy they do here. Like the scene on the steps where they're going up the steps and the media is there and their are lawyers with them and their lawyer starts doing kung fu and knocks everybody off the steps and attacks the media. That is a break with reality that you have to accept as you know, that's the way this world works. And if you do too much of that or if you don't get that tone right or if you don't nail that, your movie just lays there like a fish. And we saw it with Get Crazy. Here, I think Thomas and Moranis keep it going. I think they keep it off the ground. I think they could survive a car crash the way they survive it in this one. Very much like in the
1: Blues Brothers world of, of
0: like heightened reality. I think they did a good job of, of not only creating and expanding their world, but then also by, by using Hamlet as their structure and having them as the bumbling idiots on the side who are kind of uncovering all of this, it gives you a surprisingly strong through line to bounce all of the comedy off of. And who would have ever taken those two things and combined them except these guys?
1: Yeah. It's an impressive film, especially for debut filmmakers, especially considering the source material was, you know, an expanded sketch. There's just a lot to like about strange brew. There is a third gentleman co accredited as a screenwriter and his name was Steve DeJarnot, And he would go on to direct Cherry 2000 and Miracle Mile, two very interesting films that we'll get to in later episodes. Now we're going to move on to something a bit more serious before we end on a comedy. A very interesting prisoner of war drama starring David Bowie and Tom Conti called Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence. Do you remember that Christmas? It was a good Christmas present. <laughs> Lawrence! Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence. They were all honorable men, but oh, what deeds could be done in the name of honor. Merry Christmas, Mr.
0: Lawrence. This is one of those movies, because of Bowie being in it, that was on my
1: radar when I was a kid,
0: but that I never
1: got to. Yeah, I did not see this until a week ago. I always thought David Bowie was a good actor. After this... I think I underrated him. I think a lot
0: of people underrated him, and I think that's the problem. I don't know many directors that ever worked with Bowie the way Nagisa Oshima did. and I want to take a moment to really spotlight this filmmaker. Oshima is not thought of, I, I think, as actively or as um, pervasively as some of his peers and some of the other greats of world cinema. I think Oshima is a towering filmmaker. I think he is a guy who absolutely should be thought of in the top ranks of filmmakers. I think this is a terrific movie. I think in the
1: realm of the senses is a one-of-a-kind movie. I think he is a, a master. On a surface level, it's a very uh, straightforward World War Two POW drama uh, about two British men, as played by David Bowie and Tom Conti. They're dealing with their captors, as played fantastically by Ryuchi Sakamoto, and the great Takeshi Kitano, the the performances in this film alone, in many ways you're like, oh, I've seen POW movies, even very stark and brutal ones, but what's interesting about Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence is that it's actually about forgiveness. There is a lot of brutality and and lessons about uh, what war does to people and how you lose your humanity when you're treated this poorly, but when it's over, you realize the theme of the movie ultimately is about uh, forgiveness. Are you able to give it? Are you able to accept it? Uh, I think it's a very poignant and touching movie. This movie
0: really allows you to understand culturally why the British are who they are, why the Japanese are who they are, and the pressures that are put on them to be who they are within their cultures, and how when you go to war like this, it really is, you're pushing these two cultures up against each other, and one has to give, one has to break for the other to succeed. That is really at the heart of war, I think, what is most difficult to take is you are conditioned your whole life, you are raised a certain way, indoctrinated a certain way, you are built to be who you are, and then you are put into this situation that tests everything about it. And within this prison camp in particular, you have shame and guilt and honor and uh, and love. I, I There is love in this movie, which is... I, I think also a dangerous, dangerous thing in a place like this. And man, the performances in this, I, for people that only know Takashi Kitano through more mainstream violent work or action work or his comedy work, um, talk about a, a revelatory performance and really for Bowie, a, a high water mark in his film career.
1: The best war films often give you that empathy of yes. At one point, these war are mortal enemies. Now that time has passed, are we able to look at history and empathize with where were they coming from? Not, not necessarily were they right. Being able to look at their cultural impacts and why it led to a war. How
0: used to seeing escape movies are we when we see POW films? How used to, we're almost conditioned by the way. War movies are, are built. The moment you introduce POW camps and you introduce the conflict between the English, who are obviously right, because they're the English, and the Japanese, who are the bad guys, because they're the Japanese, then it's either going to lead to an escape or it's going to lead to a conflict. It's not that. It's a terrific film, and it's a really underrated movie. I am so glad Criterion has this as part of their collection, because I think it's a film that could very easily get lost, uh, especially because it was, it was financed in one of those ways where it's not a major studio movie movie so these are the films that vanish in the limbo unless somebody really cares for them and thank god somebody cares for this one
1: probably the best david bowie performance i've ever seen between this and hunger uh david bowie had a good 1983 uh you know who else had a good 1983 drew would that be
0: young tom cruise
1: <laughs> cue the music
0: I don't remember giving permission for a party, Joe. A
1: party? I've never to them by you never get high, Joe. Don't let me do anything stupid. Please stop. There's a time for playing it safe, and a time for risky business. Starring Tom Cruise. Rated R. At 14 or 15, no interest, none. This movie bored me to tears. I probably thought. Oh my God! Somebody wanted to make Porky's, but for adults. That's how I probably took risky business. I like resented it almost for being slightly more mature and, God forbid, dealing with romance. I had no interest. I would argue this is the Citizen
0: Kane of teenage sex comedies in the '80s, and it is also the pinnacle of the subgenre in the '80s of dudes who get involved with hookers. And learn to love them. It is both of those things. And so much more because of the magnificent writing and directing by Paul Brickman. Paul Brickman, where are you, man? It drives me crazy. Nobody hit the ground running like Paul Brickman did in the 80s. And this, this film is a debut. as a Here's who I am as a writer-director. I'm going to make this movie. It is slick. It is gorgeous. It is impeccably photographed. It is very funny. It is also honest about everything that it's doing. And it is an attack on the values of the Reagan 80s at the dawn of the Reagan 80s. This is them realizing we're about to have a decade where we are going to celebrate every shitty tendency that we have. We are going to celebrate coke and Indiscriminate sex, and we're gonna celebrate the pursuit of money for the sake of money, and greed will be good. And the eighties is gonna be this, and you're gonna love it. Get ready for it. Joel is going to be the guy that then gives us the rest of the 80s. He's the guy who is going to be on Wall Street working those jobs. He's gonna be the guy that they make movies about, like Wall Street, at the other end of this decade. He is the cautionary fable that we didn't listen to, and yet. I root for Joel in this film. I want Joel to succeed
1: because Joel is enlightened by the end of this film. You nailed why so many of these movies fail because the ultimate goal is to see boobs or get laid and that's it. And you know what, Drew? When we were teenagers, we wanted to see boobs and get laid, but that wasn't it. We had other dreams and other aspirations and other personality traits. And this movie, like, he learns shit. He matures. He has to He has to handle his shit.
0: That's ultimately what this movie is. This movie is, at the beginning of it, you are a kid whose parents will always handle your shit for you. By the end of this movie, you'll handle your shit. You've got it now. And there is something beautiful about the way he is forced into these situations because of terrible decisions he's made. And he has to pay the consequences. Joel doesn't
1: get off easy at all in this movie. Let me ask you this. You hate when a movie that deals with a prostitute and the guy throws you're a whore up in the girl's face. This movie does have a similar scene to that, but what makes it infinitely better than many of the other similar because for the first time, I truly believe this is a real
0: relationship. The relationship he has with Lana is genuinely a teacher-student relationship in the sense that she is a person who has experienced quite a bit in this world. He has not. Her lessons to him are not always lessons that are delivered with a soft touch. They are brutal
1: lessons at times in this movie. Yeah, yeah, she has some tough love in her and and it's because I think that she likes him that she does do that tough love. And as as, as likable as Tom Cruise is in this movie, let's talk about Rebecca De Mornay. Oh my, a star-making performance. What a great, confident, cocky, sensitive Tough performance. I love her in this movie. There's a quote that
0: my, my girlfriend's very fond of that I I find profound, and it's very simple, and it's a very simple thought, which is you teach people how to love you. And I think it's also larger, you just teach people how to treat you, but in the sense of love, Lana very much demonstrates to him how this has to work or it won't work. And she forces Joel to treat her better, to, to be a better person to her, which none of these movies address. None of these movies address a simple res- word that, if they did, would make all of them better, which is respect. Without respect, there's nothing. If Joel is with her, there has to be a respect that she is a person, that she has agency, that she's making choices. That she, He can't treat her choices as less than his, and he certainly can't judge her because he's making money off of these things. She is really laying down some some hard truth for him that I think most people in this world never have laid out for them as nakedly as it is here, which is be decent to people, whatever they are, because you don't know where they came from. You don't know their story. Don't judge. Treat people decently. And for a movie that is filled with characters like Guido the Killer Pimp, to have
1: this kind of, I think, genuine soul to it is why Paul Brickman is special. I'm tempted to say I'd like this film to get a remake, but I don't. What I'd like to do is show this film to this faction of young men that we're seeing a lot of nowadays who feel um, owed or angry about not not having a girlfriend or not being able to get laid and watch this movie and – You get the impression that he is a selfish horned dog. And over the course of the film, he learns to be responsible for other people's feelings. He learns that if you treat people well, in the the long run, you'll get good things too. It's it's a, a movie that both celebrates the idea of being free and wild and having a party, but also realizing, I fucked up, man. I made this house a mess and I really hurt that woman's feelings and my friends are mad at me.
0: The shitty version of this movie only addresses the first half where Curtis Armstrong impresses upon him. Sometimes you just have to say what the fuck. Yes, but if you do say what the fuck, you better be able to handle whatever happens as a result of it. And that's where Risky Business to me is so wonderful and different. And man, I love the young cast. I think Curtis Armstrong's great. I think Bronson Pinchot is great. But it's the writing and the way this thing is shot and the way it was scored. It has a terrific score on it. Tangerine Dream's score is, I, I think, next level. And this is one of those movies that, to me, defines the look of the early 80s. Movies should look like this,
1: man. There is something beautiful and stylish. And I don't know why there are two DPs on this, but they're both world-class DPs. Bruce Surtees and Rayando Yobos, but it, you're right. This is a, uh, it is a teen sex comedy with a real sense of class and production value and quality control. And I also, you, you mentioned uh, Bronson Pinchot and Curtis Armstrong. We also have to mention the awesome Richard Maser. I am really grateful that this movie didn't turn into a cringe fest because, like, I remember liking it. Not as much as you did, but I remember... I saw it probably when I was 25, and like, all right, when I was a kid, I don't know why I didn't like it, probably because it wasn't raunchy or raucous enough. It was kind of mature, and as a 14-year-old, I didn't want mature. When I saw it as an adult, I liked it very much. I like it even more now, and I was expecting, like, for the other shoe to drop any minute, and I'd go, oh, gosh, why did you do, like, oh, why did you, like, that's such a wrong-headed, ancient mentality. No, this movie, for 90% of it, feels like it could have been written this year. So Risky Business and Strange Brew are our picks for the month. And Drew also wants you all to see Smokey and the Bandit. I do. I want it. I want it so much. Um, Hey, uh, guys, next month,
0: there is some really interesting stuff happening. Uh, You are going to get uh, perhaps our only film from the entire decade directed by a monk. Uh, You are going to get a giant format science fiction film that uh, uh, was marred by tragedy. Uh, You're going to get a great, great Michael Caine performance, a terrific live action Disney movie, the weirdest chainsaw film you'll ever see, and yes, the birth of the baby boomer nostalgia culture. Uh, All of that and more, including the weirdest Bruce Springsteen impression of all time. I I, got it so much. It's September 1983. (laughs)